This is Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM, Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. All right, yes. It's time for the March 19th, 2023 episode of Cascade of History, the only live radio show about Northwest history. We talk to interesting people doing interesting things for and in support of and all around Pacific Northwest history. Got some great guests tonight, some other great audio we're going to play. Um, I am Felix Bunnell, and uh, I'm here every Sunday night from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock Pacific time, Pacific daylight time now, I guess. And we are here in the studios of Space 101.1 FM. People listen by radio here in the Seattle area. They tune in, uh, I guess they zoom in, and what's it called? They stream in on uh, space101fm.org. That website also has other information about the other programs that are offered Around the clock, all throughout the week here on Space 101.1 FM. It's a great community station for the people right here in North Seattle, but with a with an eye toward the whole world in terms of music and culture, and especially an eye toward the entire Pacific Northwest, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia, when it comes to history. We have a podcast of the show that, I mean, it's not as much fun as a live show because I, I love live and local radio. The idea that I'm sitting here in this studio where it's a balmy 63 degrees. You might have tuned in last week when we were having furnace problems, and it was 51 when I got here, or maybe 52. It's very comfortable here tonight. Um, so if somebody must have paid the heating bill. No, I'm just kidding. The Parks Department runs this building for us, and they, they take care of all that sort of stuff. But um, it's a terrific resource for the community and for the region. Um, we have a Facebook page for this show, Cascade of History. That's the best place to find out um, which guests are coming up. And we put links there to things that our guests are doing because usually our guests have events coming up. And that's true, I think, of at least uh, our first guest tonight. You can also send email to cascadeofhistory at gmail.com. I love show ideas. I love suggestions for guests. Please keep those great emails coming. Uh, tell me stories. I'm, I'm willing to talk to anybody about Pacific Northwest history. You don't have to be with an organization or anything. Just, just be doing something interesting with Northwest history. And we'd love to have you on the show. Um, a bit later on, we're going to be joined by Taha Ibrahimi. She was on the show last week talking about the old, uh, the hidden history of the cherry trees of Pike Street. Now, there is a sad update to share. Plus, we'll get to Taha's perspective on what happened and what happens next for that, uh, that sad grove of trees that I watched personally as well as the next chapter of their uh, life unfolded earlier this week. Um, we're also going to hear the fourth installment of our deep dive into vintage local audio. You might be sitting on the edge of your seat to, to wonder what happens next in this, this crazy, it's like a serial. It's a, uh, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a live broadcast originally from 1938 from Como Radio, whose call letters don't exist on the radio anymore. Um, they did a show from the J.C. Penney department store when it was new 85 years ago in downtown Seattle. Now, I don't expect you to remember how the last episode, installment three, ended. But for, for those who can't remember, here's a little a teaser of how it ended last week. And remember... Part of uh, the fun of this broadcast was to trace the procedure of these various items. That's our item for the fourth floor. But, Bob, who do we talk to here? Uh, Mr. Greenfield. 
I guess it really wasn't much of a tease because he asked the question, Bob, who do we talk to about all these products moving around this great big department store 85 years ago? And I think they said it was Mr. Greenfield. But we'll find out exactly what Mr. Greenfield does in the exciting, uh, not the conclusion, it's probably episode four of, I'm guessing, about 20 episodes. We're going to milk that show for months. Uh, but first, I want to invite on the air our first guest. Let's see if he's there, can join us. Peter Blecka, can you hear me? I can now with oh. a little faint before, but we're good. Yeah, I, I love when that happens because nine times out of ten, the person, when they say, can you hear me, they say yes. So I'm really relieved. Thank you so <laughs> much for taking time on a Sunday night. As I always say to all of our guests in the preliminary conversation, it's an inconvenient time if you're a guest to be on the radio on a Sunday night. But I think for those people sitting at home listening, it's kind of a nice time to sort of look ahead to the week that's coming and kind of just relax and listen to some interesting people talking about uh, local history. And Fortunately, we found an interesting person in you and this new book that you have out called Stomp and Shout. And the subtitle is R&B and the Origins of Northwest Rock and Roll. It's from University Press. It's a gorgeous book. It's got all kinds of great uh, images, and it's an amazing amount of history. How long have you been working on this book? Well, uh, first of all, thanks for inviting me on your show, Felix. This is going to be some fun. Uh, to answer your question, I have been interviewing uh, musicians and radio DJs from the Northwest and dance promoters and uh, audio engineers who recorded all the hit records up here in the Northwest uh, for over 40 years. Yeah, and you you have a long biography of stuff you've done. You were one of the, found, the founding curator at the Experience Music Project, which I guess is now called Mopop, but I still think of it as EMP. <laughs> and you, this, I think, is your 10th book. You and I, when I worked at Mohai, you and I would sort of... Uh, put our heads together and collaborate on stuff. And you're always a great resource for what I like is that sort of that pop culture history that music is a part of. Because it's the film and TV and the music, all that stuff's kind of tied together with just the, the culture that people were consuming that was emerging from here, you know, going back, in, in, the, in the case of this book, going back to the 1940s, I think, right? That is true. I tried to trace the origins of uh, the distinct form of Pacific Northwest rock uh, back to, well, back to its origins, back to the beginnings. And uh, my goal with the book, Stomp and Shout, was to tell the story of how uh, early Northwest rock uh, was a distinct form in this region and how it, unlike a few other regions around the country, it uh, evolved from earlier rhythm and blues and rude jazz, as it was called back in the day. <laughs> and, uh, one, of the de one of the defining aspects uh, of early Northwest rock was that uh, was the predominant use of saxophones and keyboards. You didn't find that everywhere, like where rockabilly uh, twanging guitar bands were the mode of rocking out. And here in the Northwest, it was about saxophones and keyboards, and we're going to hear a bunch of that on some of the uh, vintage songs we're going to play later. That's great. I, you know, I, read the, um, I read the excerpt from your book that was in the Seattle Times, I think, last weekend, and mm -hmm. it occurred to me that you know, the, a lot of the, the black performers who are associated with Seattle and the earliest part of their careers in Seattle, which, and we'll get the first song we're going to play in a minute, we'll get to, it seems like a lot of those guys moved here from someplace else. Like it was, you know, so much my in-migration during World War II of black people moving to Seattle. It had a, had a very tiny black population before World War II, and it really exploded during the 1940s. I imagine that's, that's part of the reason we've got such a diverse mix of music is that in-migration of people from other parts of the country. That is correct, Felix. Uh, you know, the way I look at it is that by the late 1930s, the 1940s, there were several different... Uh, music scenes active here, so to speak. There was definitely a strong country western scene in the Northwest. Oh, yeah. Uh, there was a jazz scene that was both uh, uh, black and white oriented. 
there was, of course, a classical music scene, and then there was a fairly strong uh, religious realm uh, based out of the churches up here. What there wasn't was a blues or a rhythm and blues or a rock and roll scene yet, and uh, it took newcomers arriving here to bring that new music. Um, for example, uh, probably the first guy to show up in the Northwest uh, was a guitar player named Clarence Williams, who billed himself as the Prince of the Blues, and he arrived here in 1946. Uh, according to you know the research I've done so far, I can't find any mentions really of people trying to play the blues uh, in the Northwest prior to that. God, that is that's what I love about one of the things I love about this country is how big it is, and now you have all these very diverse regions, especially 75, 80 years ago, where there wasn't the connections of technology the way there is now, and those the borders are totally fluid between the states, and people can move you know 2,000, 3,000 miles and bring their culture with them, and just start mixing it in with what's already here. That's I love it. I'm getting uh, the back of my neck is tingling right now. <laughs> so, but, well, but, that leads us right into uh, <laughs> the fact that uh, the first record we're going to play here is um, one that was uh, recorded in March 1940. I'm sorry, in March 1948 is when this musician arrived in the Northwest, wow. and he was a blind teenage pianist uh, from Florida who came to Seattle originally because he was so frustrated with life in the Deep South. Uh, that he basically pulled a map out with a friend of his and said, uh, point me the way, I want to get, a far away, get as far away from here as possible. And the buddy said, well, you're talking West Coast, you're talking <laughs> Seattle. So he hopped on a bus and arrived here in March 1948 and immediately uh, jumped right into the jazz scene on South Jackson Street in Seattle. And his name was Ray Charles Robinson. Wow. And the very first night that he played here, he played a couple blues songs at a at a local uh, bar, uh, nightclub, and um, and that by playing those couple songs there, he immediately, that very first night, he got a regular gig. Somebody walked <laughs> up to him and said, hey, can you put a trio together? And he said, I think I can. Wow. And uh, then you're hired, and so he did. He went to the uh, Black Musicians Union. That, of course, was at a time in Seattle when there was racially segregated musicians unions. There was one for the white people and one for the black. He went to the black union, found a couple guys, and uh, they started playing regularly, and just all the pieces sort of uh, fell into place for him. That's crazy. And that, the idea that he could just arrive here by bus and have, be put to work that quickly is just like... That, and that, that wasn't in that, uh, that biopic they did. They didn't show that Seattle early scene, did they? I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see that. I want to see the prequel to that. To the, that's what's all about Ray Charles in Seattle. So, okay, so the song we're going to hear is called Confession Blues. What should we know about it? We should know that... Um, a, it was the first bluesy record ever produced in Seattle, and simultaneously it was the very first record that Ray Charles, the uh, genius of soul, uh, recorded in his lifetime, uh, very first one out of zillions of recordings, and that it was recorded downtown Seattle in a studio, and I believe that it was recorded, it's not known for certain, but logic dictates that it was recorded at... Uh, a radio station studio downtown, KOL Radio. So that'd be the Northern Life Tower down in the basement. You've got it. Oh wow! So okay, did they? Were there? Was there a lot of stuff recorded there? There was, but it was mostly uh, pop and country western. But uh, you know, I've tracked the history of recording studios in Seattle year by year by year, and there were a couple in the 1930s wow. prior to what we're going to listen to here. But they were vanity studios where somebody would go and record a Happy Mother's Day disc to mail to mom, <laughs> something like that, or, you know, a Valentine's Day poem that they would send to their lover, something like that. This was the first uh, 
uh, first example of a worthwhile <laughs> that's, record that had a good beat to it. <laughs> that's great. That's very cool. All right. So it's now anything else we should, should we listen to this now, or is there anything else you want to say before we hit the the play button here on Ray Charles Confession Blues? One last thing is okay. it is Ray Charles on piano and vocals, and uh, another writer out there somewhere did point out that uh, when the guitar solo comes in, that it sort of hints at the future of music, that uh, guitars were going to start taking over real soon. Right on. Okay, here's Ray Charles with Confession Blues on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. I want to tell you a story boy who was once in love I want to tell you a story of a boy who was once in love and how the girl that I loved robbed me of the happiness I dreamed of She called me fine, sweet, and mellow But that didn't mean a thing She called me fine, sweet, and mellow But that didn't mean a thing Because I knew when she was beloved That meant a watch Bracelet, a diamond ring. song. It, it reminds me a little bit of Nat King Cole from that era. Many people have said that, that yeah. he was on, in fact, I think he would have said that, that he was on a Nat King Cole uh, thing at the start of his career, and he roughened up his sound a bit later as time went on. Yeah, because I, I mean, I suppose Nat King Cole could play the piano like like that, but he didn't naturally gravitate toward that kind of more bluesier, like like the way the guitar solo morphs into the piano solo is amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's yep. pretty cool. And this was early. I mean, I the more I listen to that, I realize that the guys are sort of pushing on the one, pushing on the downbeat there, and <laughs> yeah. it wasn't really a lazy blues because they had that push on the one, but yeah, they were trying. That's cool. That's amazing. That's in that Northern Life Tower in that basement of that big, beautiful building and that KOL kind of square, kind of general interest radio station in the night, late 40s, being the home for Ray Charles' first recording. That's incredible. All right. <laughs> um, 
Now, our next on the list here, we have Big J McNeely, and there's something on your mind. This is a personal favorite of mine. I just think it's a uh, immortal song, basically. It's, uh, it's just good through and through. The story behind it is that by the mid-1950s, there were a lot of black jazz and early rhythm and blues and early black rock and roll stars starting to tour through the Pacific Northwest, and they were coming from New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, and uh, among them were Fats Domino, Hank Ballard and the Midnighters, Little Richard, and Richard Berry, the man who brought us Louie Louie. <laughs> uh, but the other one who we're going to hear from here is uh, Big J McNeely, who was one of the great 1950s saxophone honkers uh, from Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, a couple things to keep in mind about what is historically significant about this recording. One being that in 1957-58, Seattle really didn't have a uh, commercial recording industry. There was only a couple recording studios that were active, and nobody had recorded an actual hit uh, <laughs> record here yet. Radio stations wouldn't support the local records. They wouldn't support local labels, and so because uh, they were programming, uh, especially you know songs like the one we're going to hear, because they were mainly exclusively airing songs of for the white population here. Yeah. But there was one guy in town whose name is Tom Ogilvie, an old friend of mine, now long gone, but he had formed a record label named Seafair Records in honor of the <laughs> annual summer Seafair Festival here in Seattle. And he knew a guy in West Seattle named Joe Bowles, who yeah. was a hobbyist uh, audio engineer with a tape recorder and microphones. And he worked out <laughs> of his uh, basement, his house, his home basement in West Seattle. <laughs> Uh, so the day came along when McNeely came to town again with his band to play some extended gigs in town. And uh, he had a brand new song that he hadn't recorded yet. It was called There Is Something On Your Mind. And he got the idea to try and, while his band was here, uh, to try and record it in Seattle. So somehow he hooked up with Tom Ogilvie and Joe Bowles, and they recorded the song in that basement studio. And the recording came out quite well. Everybody was surprised. Um, <laughs> so they had a little meeting, a little confab there, and Big J. McNeely said, Hey, man, I love your sound here. Uh, you got, you've really captured my song nicely on your tape there. Is there any way we can release it? Well, Big J. McNeely, for 15 years prior to that, had been recording songs and even some minor hits on uh, black-oriented labels out of you know Cincinnati and out of Los Angeles. But he was stuck here for several weeks, and he wanted to get this song out. So he offered it to them, the Seattle guys, and said, if you want to release it, you can. So they, again, had a little meeting and said, you know, if we release it out of Seattle here, radio's not going to support it. The stores aren't going to stock it. It would just waste the song. So they told Big, Big, Big J. McNeely, why don't you take it back to Los Angeles with you and see what you can do with it down there. And... Um, and uh, he did. He returned home to Los Angeles, and the rest is history. I think we should listen to it. But what I'd like to point out again is uh, Big J. McNeely is one of the bands here that helped spark the Pacific Northwest rock and roll sound, um, partially due to his honking saxophone. That's great. Okay, so it's, we're, in case you just have joined us, it's Pete Blecka, who's a music historian, author of the new book, Stomp and Shout, Stomp and Shout R&B and the Origins of Northwest Rock and Roll. We're going to listen to Big J. McNeely, There is Something on Your Mind, recorded in Seattle in 1958. All right, on, on Space 101.1 FM. There is something on your mind. I don't 
Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. I'm Felix Bunnell. Uh, we're joined by musical historian and author Pete Blecka, and that was Big J McNeely with There Is Something On Your Mind. Um, question for you about the um, recording technology. I assume that's all done live to tape in a room with very little isolation of the instruments? That, uh, I believe you're correct. I mean, uh, one of the factors is that uh, Joe Bowles, for being a hobbyist, he had state-of-the-art gear. Yeah, it's um, it sounds sounds like something that would have come out of L.A. <laughs> you know, it sounds, I couldn't I wouldn't guess it was from Seattle in terms of the what you described the scene was like in terms of the quality of the studios around here. That it sounded really good. Yeah, Joe Bowles as an audio engineer uh, raised the stakes here. I mean, he he was a successful businessman. He ran the Seattle Harbor Tours Company, so he had boats <laughs> that took tourists out around Puget Sound. So he had an income, and recording bands was his hobby. That's great. Now, that's not who recorded the first Venture single, is it? The Walk Don't Run? Yes, Joe Bowles recorded the Venture, so uh, Walk okay. Don't Run. He recorded the Fleetwoods Come Softly to Me. Oh, wow. God. And he recorded many, many more. It's a own it's its own story, the Joe Bowles saga, Boy, which I have written yeah. in biography for History Link. Where do people get uh, most of their Pete Blecka content from? Where's the best place to go online to read other stuff you've done and see other stuff you've done? If you go to historylink.org okay. online and uh, put in the search field, Peter Blecka. Okay. We'll come up with about 300, I think, essays that I've written mostly about Pacific Northwest music history. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, a guy like Joe, think of an alternate universe where there's no Joe Bowles and it's like nothing happens. <laughs> uh, like it would have taken a while longer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So next up on our list here is Little Bill and the Blue Notes with I Love an Angel. Well, before that, I would like oh. to put an a, a, a exclamation point on the, on the Big Jake McNeely sure. story by saying that here's this guy who had been recording songs for probably 15 years for many labels. He had had some hits. He was a successful band leader. That was his only national hit. It went to number 44 in 1959. It was wow. the biggest hit McNeely would ever have in his career. That's crazy. And yeah. its impact locally, to put a fine point on it, is that that song became, just as Louie Louie became, a song that, uh, that nearly every up-and-coming teenage rock band uh, would would play or record in the following years. Uh, among the bands, or the, among the uh, rockers who recorded it were Portland's Dawn and the Good Times. But more significantly, I think, uh, was that it was one of the very first songs that Jimi Hendrix recorded when he headed to New York uh, in 1965, and he was on his way to global fame. But that song wow. he'd grown up with here, it meant something to him. And uh, That's cool. It's, yep. all, it's all connected is what you're trying to say. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now, so this next uh, number, Little Bill and the Blue Notes, I Love an Angel. 
Yes, what we want to pay attention to on this, well, first of all, I'll say that uh, Little Bill and the Blue Notes were one of the first, were, were the Northwest's first white teenage rhythm and blues band. The other bands that have been around prior to him were Rockabilly Guys, Twangin' Away, <laughs> uh, and, you know, a zillion other bands came up in their wake. But here's these teenage Tacoma kids from the wrong side of the tracks, basically, and they wanted to have a rhythm and blues band. So what we will hear on this is what I uh, mentioned when we began, which is multiple saxophones. Now we're going to start getting the two Northwest down. On this recording, there's three saxophones in the band. <laughs> and uh, here's Joe Bowles again. I mean, these guys uh, drive up to Seattle. They want to make a record. They go to Joe Bowles' house. He uh, records them, and he's really impressed by it. He goes, kids, is that? did you write that one? Yeah, we wrote that song. Wow. That's a hit. Here, let me get on the phone. I'm going to make a phone call. <laughs> he called across town in Seattle here to Dalton Records, which was the company that uh, he had previously worked with, uh, launching the international hit career for the Fleetwoods out of Olympia, the teenage doo-wop group out of Olympia, wow. who had a number one hit. Actually, they had a, two number one hits in a row in 1959. He says, I've got this band here in my basement right now. Come over and hear them. We have this new hit. And sure enough... The executives of the record label came over to the house and said, that's it, that is a hit. They signed him, and uh, wow. let's hear it. There's a little bit on the blue notes, I Love an Angel from 1959. Well, I love an angel, but does she love me? Well, I'll never know, and I'll never be free from this infatuation. Lives inside of me. I love an angel, but does she? Does she love me? Well, I met this angel a long time ago. She said that she loved me and never let me go. Our love has gone astray I love this angel to my dying day Infatuation 
inside of me I love an angel But does she, does she love me? Little Bill on the Blue Notes. I love an angel on Space 101.1 FM. It's Cascade of History. We're live every Sunday night. And joining us tonight is Pete Blecka, music historian, author of the new book, Stomp and Shout. Um, boy, that sounds like every great sort of doo-wop hit like that from that era. Um, it reminds me of like the Skyliners, Since I Don't Have You, or something like that. Just it's Same all, chord. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all, all the, the notes. <laughs> but that one, everybody could hear it. That's what you call a saxophone choir there. Three horns <laughs> in, you know, working together. And the reason this happened is because these kids in the Blue Notes were going down to the Evergreen Ballroom in Olympia and watching uh, Ray Charles, you know. Ray Charles had already left the Northwest, and now he's coming back with his band, and he sometimes toured with six saxophones. <laughs> Hank Ballard in the Midnight's. Uh, likewise had four or five sometimes Bobby Blue Bland's band also played around Little Richard sometimes came to town with multiple saxophones that's what inspired the kids back then now Little Bill and the Blue Nuts how well did they do nationally and were they playing them on the radio here in Seattle for instance yes that became a you know sizable hit here in in Seattle and then it went national it uh, I think it hit the top 40 it kind of limp bottomed out after that but uh, and it was issued in England things like that so and it was the launch of Little Bill's career. He only retired last year. He's been playing ever since then. So, uh, wow. And he came to my book release party. Oh, that's cool. Uh, so That's awesome. That's really yeah. cool. Um, okay, so now um, next song I'm going to do is one from one of my favorite artists, who I love their Christmas song, Who Says There Ain't No Santa Claus, the only uh, Christmas song that ends with the protagonist in the electric chair. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a whole nother story. I think actually we played that on the Cascade of History Christmas special uh, late last year. But anyway, um, so Ron Holden would love you so. What's this song like? Well, Ron Holden, let's talk about Ron for two seconds here. I know I'm blathering too longer than I should, but no, I this is want... good. You got time. We 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 got time to go get through all the music here. Just keep all keep right. going. Keep doing what you do so well. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Ron Holden uh, was a uh, soul singer from Seattle, and he was uh, one of five musically-oriented children of the pianist Mr. Oscar Holden, who was considered the father of Seattle jazz. He arrived in Seattle, like in 1919, from the South, uh, where he had played with Louis Armstrong and the ragtime jazz star Jelly Roll Morton. So uh, that's a pretty good pedigree there. Uh, I just said that uh, Oscar Holden had five kids. All of them were musical. I do want to tip my hat here today. to honor Dave Holden, Ron Holden's brother, who actually passed away today. Oh, no, I met Dave Holden before, about 10 years ago, or maybe 15 years ago now. Oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. I was, too. Uh, but the best picture I've ever seen of the guy is in the book, so in his 1950s uh, combo. So, oh, wow. Oh, jeez. Uh, okay. We'll miss Dave. Oh, but, man. Uh, back to his uh, baby brother, Ron. Um, Ron was an uh, interesting guy. He was basically a jock at Garfield High, but he fell into a band called the Playboys around 1958, and they became one of the leading bands playing teenage dances on weekends all around Seattle. Unfortunately, at one of those dances, he was caught by the Seattle police sipping a beer and puffing on a reefer out in the parking lot with some of his friends. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and among them was an underage girlfriend. He ended up in jail mm. for a brief sentence. But while he was in the slammer, he wrote his girlfriend a love letter, 
and him and his fellow jailbirds started singing a doo-wop version of it uh, in the jail cell. <laughs> a jailer heard them. He liked it. He told Ron that he was about to quit being a deputy sheriff, and he uh, was going to form a record company. And long story short, they recorded this song uh, in Seattle. And uh, by the way, that sheriff's deputy uh, was a fellow by the name of Larry Nelson, who worked on Seattle radio for decades. Oh, that Larry Nelson? That Larry Nelson from, oh, I you're think, Como. you're kidding me. Okay, mm-hmm. I, I was going to say, it sounded like a Tom Hanks movie there for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> no. Wow. So, uh, Larry Nelson formed a record label, and they issued this song. I didn't know that. Wow. Pressed it on a record, and they took it to K-A-Y-O, K-O Radio, where <laughs> a young DJ named Pat O'Day <laughs> broke it on the air <laughs> in October of 1960, and it quickly went to number one in Seattle. Let's hear it. Ron Holden, love you so.
John Holden with Love You So on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. Reminded me a little bit of uh, Little Darling, I think. Yep, same chord. (laughs) (laughs) It was easier in the 50s when nobody minded if all the songs had the same chord. Yeah, it was was comforting, yeah. That's a a great song. Again, it's instant, it's like a, I mean, it's... It's very catchy, like right away. It sort of gets gets right to that part of your brain that likes that kind of music and just like hooks it right there. All the little things connect properly, like like a virus. <laughs> That's right, and it worked for everybody. I mean, that became a top ten national song, and again, it was uh, uh, became a bit of an international hit as well. In England, they liked the flip side better. Uh, both songs became a hit. Uh, Love You Say became a hit, but the B side called uh, My Babe was the bigger hit. That's great. Yeah, though that record public sometimes just defies, you know, defies expectations and flips the record over and makes that one more popular. That's crazy. I love it when that happens. All right, we, hope, we, go ahead. Hopefully everybody noticed the uh, saxophone choir going on. That's <laughs> like I, I you know, I had never I never knew that before about this the prevalence of the saxophone here. I guess I mean I experienced it like especially through the Sonics in particular. But yeah. having you spell it out like that, it's really clear now. And I, I, now I can't unhear that or can't unsee that. It's like a, it's like an evolutionary through line. All you right, can hear them everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, now we've just got a few minutes left here, but we want to get to this last song. And this one you might have heard it before. It's called Louie Louie, <laughs> and this is the Paul Revere and the Raiders version. What's special about this one? Well, let's see. First of all, um, our listeners should know that uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders began their. Uh, trajectory in Idaho, but they ended up in the 1950s, but they ended up in Portland, Oregon by 1962. In jumping ahead in 1963, they had crosstown rival, the Kingsman. <laughs> so it's a well-worn story, but the fun <laughs> thing that never ends about this is that both of those bands, the Kingsman and then the Raiders, both recorded their own versions of Louie Louie in the same recording studio in Portland in the same month of April 1963, and then all that summer they battled on Portland radio for which version of Louie Lou was going to be the hit because each of them had a manager who was a DJ at, at rival station. <laughs> so they were, each, DJ, each manager was pushing the different versions. Um, in the end, what happened was that Paul Revere and the Raiders in the beginning got the better deal. They ended up scoring a major record deal with a um, big-time record company, yeah. Columbia Records, uh, and went on to their fabulous career. It was the a, Kingsman, on the other hand, ultimately uh, won the sweepstakes with their version of Louie Louie, and that's the one that everybody thinks of as being the Louie Louie. Yeah. Uh, but what's fun about the uh, uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders uh, version is that it um, features Mark Lindsay's saxophone honking. <laughs> and most people think about Mark Lindsay as the teen idol with the ponytail who had a really great voice, but... Uh, here we go. This is really the one that had more of a Northwest sound to it. All right. Too. Sing along, or better yet, play your saxophone along with this one now. And, uh, here's uh, the Kingsman with, uh, oh, excuse me, I'm, I almost said it wrong. I gave the wrong credit. <laughs> the Crosstown Rivals. It's Paul Revere and the Raiders with Louie Louie on Cascade of History. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Great ending. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've, we've covered a lot of ground artistically and uh, chronologically tonight, and I really thank you for joining us on the show. The book is called Stomp and Shout. It's out now from University of Washington Press. You have a couple of events coming up, um, one in April and one in May. Can you give us just a quick little word about those? Because I'd love to be able to point people to, toward those if they're able to attend. Sure, I appreciate that. Yes, uh, the, really the first big event is going to be at Seattle's town, town Hall, and it's on April 19th. Uh, in addition to me jabbering about the book there, uh, uh, Devon Lewis, the Devon Lewis combo is going to be playing some uh, Seattle oriented music, uh, some oldies and some newies, um, and he is the grandson of Dave Lewis, who I consider the father of Northwest Rock. We didn't play his songs tonight, but um, uh, the second one is uh, May 18th. Well, that's with the Pacific Northwest Historian Guild, May 23rd at McMiniman's uh, Elks Temple in Tacoma, and the musical uh, feature that night is going to be Girl Trouble. Awesome. I love those guys. I saw them. First time I ever saw them, I was in Boston in October 1988, and I saw them at a little club called The Middle East in Cambridge. Wow. What a great show that was. Sat Ooh, at the man. bar and talked to Dale, the bassist, after the show for a while. And then Bon Von Wheely. <laughs> What's the name of the lead singer? The guy? I'm blanking uh, Kahuna, on him. Big Kahuna? Yeah, the Big Kahuna. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, I'd love to have you back sometime because there's so much more Northwest music history we could talk about. I hope you can join us again on an upcoming episode of the show. And uh, feel free to reach out anytime you've got stuff coming up or you want to talk about I would love to have you back on Cascade of History. Thank you very much, Felix. It's been my joy. Appreciate right. the invite. Really nice talking to you. We'll talk to you mm-hmm. soon, Peter. Thanks. So have a good right. night. Bye-bye. Good night. Peter Blecka, uh, definitely check out those events and get a copy of the book, Stomp and Shout, R&B and the Origins of Northwest Rock and Roll. Um, just a fabulous book and lots of great stories. And glad we could feature it here on Cascade of History. All right, um, we're going to have Taha Ibrahimi joining us in just a few minutes. But I don't want to turn our back on our commitment to our Como 1938 audio. Um, we're going to get to this. I'm going to play the tease for you one more time so you remember what it is, we're, what the stakes are on, the, on this program. Right? Remember this? And remember, part of uh, the fun of this broadcast was to trace the procedure <coughs> of these various items. That's our item for the fourth floor. But, Bob, who do we talk to here? Uh, Mr. Greenfield. Yes, it's Mr. Greenfield. So without further delay, let's talk to Mr. Greenfield. Mr. Greenfield, you're in charge of this floor? Yes, sir. How do you like your new location? I'm sold on it. <laughs> I like it very much. You don't mind if I uh, suggest that you're sufficiently tall, so I have to hold the microphone about a foot higher than ordinary. Yes, sir. And that if they can't hear me, that's the reason. Yes, sir. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, uh, Mr. Greenfield, would it be possible for me to have a word or two with one of the many girls who are busy getting ready for tomorrow morning's opening? Yes, we have a girl over here who's not busy. Uh, Over by the the infant square department? Yes, sir. Uh, Mrs. Smith, you... Good afternoon. (laughs) Good afternoon. Uh, It may be evening, too, you know. Mrs. Smith, uh, you look just the type of person who would enjoy working in an infant square department, do you? I do. How do you like uh, your new location? Oh, I think it's the swellest in town. <laughs> you do? Well, that's fine. Uh, is pink or blue the predominating infant square color this year? I would say pink. In other words, more boys than yes. girls this year? <laughs> oh, well, that's fine. That's what I wanted to know. I'm sure that Uncle Sam would be glad to hear about that. <laughs> and uh, back to Mr. Greenfield. Now, uh, how do you receive the things that come down to you from the stockroom floor above from data? We receive them on the truck in the evening and place them around the department and put them on the tables, display them. As long as they're here? Yes, sir. <laughs> well, now, um, 
We mentioned uh, this boys' baseball uniform with Rainier written across the front of it. And we're following one item through on each floor to find out exactly where it... Uh, we know where it came from, exactly to find out where it went. And I'm wondering uh, if you will show me where in the boys' shop uh, that particular type of uniform went. It's in the center of the boys' shop with a baseball cap. Right uh, over here. Oh, yes. Well, now we're going to walk around here uh, past a table with some very interesting pants on it. Those are boys' pants, aren't they? Yes, and uh, we're in the boys' department proper. There's another table of knickers. And we're walking by a mirror and baseball hats and some... Say, what do you call those uh, hats with very vivid reds and yellows and greens? Fancy felts. Fancy felts. Those are what the well-dressed uh, Seattle boy will wear? College boys and <laughs> high school boys. I see. And right over here to our right, uh, standing by itself is our base boys' baseball uniform that we were watching for and found, thanks uh, to Mr. Greenfield. Yes, sir. Thanks so much for your cooperation. And Bob, our next floor is which? On the third floor. All right. Well, we'll follow those theoretical dollies that uh, were filled with merchandise on the fifth floor, and we'll go downstairs immediately. You're not going to you're not going to want to miss next week's installment where we get to the third floor. Although Mr. Greenfield was pretty helpful with the tables full of uh, interesting boys' pants and knickers and baseball uniforms. Really takes you back to the late 1930s there through the magic of vintage audio. I'm Felix Spinella. This Cascade of History. We are about 10 minutes left till the show wraps up, and we've got a. Uh, Guest joining us now, this is Taha Ibrahimi. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Uh, Hi, Felix. Terrific. Hey, thank you for joining me on the show. You, you were on last week, and we had you kind of explaining the hidden history of these controversial... <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I laugh, but I, I laugh laughing through the tears because there are these uh, beautiful old cherry trees down on Pike Street between 1st Avenue oh. and 2nd Avenue. And when we last talked last Saturday night, or excuse me, last Sunday night... There had been this compromise reached where the city agreed to replace the trees. They were going to take them down. And the different groups involved were, nobody was very happy about it. Um, and then, you know, there was unclear when it was going to happen, what would happen next. But then Tuesday morning, I sent you a couple pictures from my phone. And what did those pictures show? Uh, they showed, uh, it looked like they were chopping off the branches, the biggest branches, before they were uh, sawing down all of them. I, I did get to walk by them later on, and they were completely cut down to the ground yeah and it was i don't know um it was troubling because i think um the the way it moved so quickly the fact they had that monday uh, the previous monday it was all going to be they were going to be cut down and then i think on tuesday the mayor's office said no we're going to we're going to extend the public process we're going to have these meetings i know Mm -hmm. that the the group uh, Save the Market Entrance was involved. And that's when I first met you because you're, you're the author of a book that's coming out next year called Street Trees of Seattle. And you've done all this research. You found all this sort of backstory, which we talked about on last week's show and which is still there on the podcast if people want to hear the 15 or 20 minutes or so we spent last week talking about the history. But what was your, I mean, how did you feel on Tuesday when I, I mean, a dumb question, how did you feel when, I, when, when you saw the trees in person? Oh, just thickened. And I, I live pretty close, so I just took the light rail down and did to go see it myself. And it, the whole block smelled like fresh cut wood. And it was yeah. just, it was very, very surreal. But the story does get weirder, Felix, believe it or not. That's why you're uh, on the show tonight. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oddly, there are two oaks still standing <clears throat> on that block. Every cherry tree is cut down. But there are these two oaks standing up, 
And the whole point of cutting down the trees was that it, they were supposedly in the way of making this curbless sidewalk. So it's a mystery. It's definitely a mystery. And, and has anyone offered any kind of answer about that or any kind of like, you know, is there any, because I, I, I went down, I went down late at night, I think on, oh God, one night late last week, maybe Thursday or Friday and saw just that. Yeah. I only found one of the, one of the oak trees. I couldn't find the other one, but it, it did seem pretty bizarre because it seemed like exactly what you said. The whole idea was to clear that, clear the pathway to, to reorient the street this way. But I am dumbfounded. I have no idea how that makes sense. And then the other weird thing is that, Remember, the mayor said that he was going to triple the amount of cherry trees after these were cut down, and he had mentioned that there were eight cherry trees that were being cut down, but we counted, and there were actually ten. So (laughs) it sounds like uh, the number was wrong, as well as the species. It, It doesn't really instill a lot of confidence in the whole thing being vetted thoroughly, and that was that was along with the fact that the the research that you that you shared hadn't come to the attention of the the people involved with Waterfront Seattle, which is a, it's sort of a, a conglomeration of city agencies, transportation, and I'm not sure what else, but they're sort of a, they're, they're the public agency that has a lot of consultants overseeing God, the, devo- it, go ahead. It, it's extra evil because it was literally weeks right before they were about to bloom. Like, why not wait a little bit? But yeah. my social media was just, I mean, it was blowing up. I saw something on TikTok or Instagram Reels, I think it had over 27,000 likes. And yeah. another thing had like over 20,000. I mean, everybody was talking about it in yeah. Seattle but, these past couple of days. And it kind of honestly warmed my heart a little bit because I I didn't know how many thousands of people had memories with these trees and everybody was kind of sharing that. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's just a shame that that has to, it always takes the things being cut down to get people to really respond and really react that way. Um, because it seems yeah. like it seems like there was a kind of a missed opportunity there, just because the the, the process got so sped up there at the end. Um, I was uh, there was a you know, <laughs> there was a spokesperson there from or communications person from I think from Waterfront Seattle. I'm, I won't say his name, mm-hmm. but he had he's like I got down there. I I went down there randomly. I think it was Tuesday morning last week. And yeah. I sort of just I drove down at about eight thirty, and as I was pulling up, it's like wait a minute, that's a guy with a chainsaw. And so I parked in the oh market and ran across the street and started taking pictures and. The guy from uh, Waterfront Seattle came up to me and said, oh, you seem to have a lot of interest in this. Here, I'll give you a copy of this press release. And that was that oh. fact sheet I sent you guys a copy of. And yep, yep. I was joking with him trying to say, like, so you, can you confirm for me that these all the all the lumber is going to be sent for the mayor's personal use in his fireplace? And I couldn't I couldn't get the guy to really crack a smile or laugh. And I said something like, well, will pundits eventually point to this day as the day that Mayor Harrell's future re-election bid was was finally shot down. Like this is the beginning of the end. But again, the guy the guy wouldn't. I don't know if he didn't. I think my I was probably talking too fast. I was kind of amped up. But um, I I just want to could could somebody just count the trees? Like how hard is that to just you know count to whatever the accurate yeah. number of trees is? Especially if we're going to be replacing them, mm-hmm. which we'll be you know pushing for. Of course, we want to get the accurate number tripled. So. Yeah, because that's, um, that's the idea. Do you, do you know the timing of when they'll actually be planting trees there in the newly reimagined Pike Street block between 1st and 2nd? Is there a timeline yet? No clue. No clue. I mean, there might be. I, I, haven't, I haven't looked that in depth in there. I have yeah. no idea. Yeah. yeah. And then, All I do okay. know is that in a couple of weeks, we would have had cherry blossoms. And yeah. there are two oaks still standing on that, on that block. 
I mean, not I, that I have anything against oats. Yeah, the cherry blossoms. I think if they let the cherry blossoms remain, then it would have been a then it would have been a dogfight. Then this thing, they'd still be standing. It'd be this. It would it would have gone on for years. Who knows? Um, now, and I know they did. Part of the compromise was a historic plaque describing kind of the interpretive history of the trees that were there, right? I, I heard about a plaque. Uh, honestly, that just sounds so empty to me. I mean, it, the the trees really symbolize um, yeah. missing people. You know, I it, reading the comments on social media today, there were many Japanese American people commenting about. Um, about their memories with these trees. And remember, after World War II, one-third of the incarcerated Japanese never returned to Seattle. That's right. And, That's right. And those who did come back, honestly, came back to homes and businesses that were sometimes destroyed or looted. And those Japanese flowering cherries, you know, had been uh, deliberately chopped down around the city at that time. So it was the next gift from Japan that helped us replant these Japanese flowering cherries in Seattle. And then, funnily enough, it's the 80th year, um, it's been 80 years since, since Japanese internment began, actually, this year. So this is how... Um, I think it's 81, actually. Is it? Yeah, uh, it was 42. Was, yeah, right after Pearl Harbor, it was like March of 42, so we're, we're at 81 years. But yeah, it's, it's still, I mean, and I just noticed today the Los Angeles Times agreed to no longer use the term internment. They're going to use incarceration now to describe. Oh, geez. I Jap- need, okay, I need yeah. to figure that out. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, no, but I mean, I'm like you. I, would, I wouldn't trade trees for a plaque. I mean, I, I, want, I want to appreciate trees by having trees, not just a, not a plaque to talk about how great they were. So Anyway, I mean, it's kind of a farce. Yeah. yeah, I really appreciate you jumping on with us last week and coming on again tonight. And um, I'd love to have you back again when your book comes out next year or even sooner than that. If there are other trees in the city that we should be paying attention to, to be taken care of. Let's talk about that. Let's have a let's do the, the advance warning for other trees that might be <laughs> threatened. So Taha Ibrahimi. Yep. Thank you so much for joining us on Cascade of History and appreciate your time. And let's let's talk again sometime. All Thank you so much, Felix. Good Bye-bye. night. Bye. Taha Ibrahimi, her book is coming out in about a year. Uh, put, put it on your calendar, Street Trees of Seattle. All right, I want to thank Taha Ibrahimi for joining us and thank Peter Blecka for sharing all that great music with us and those great stories about uh, my favorite ones about Larry Nelson <laughs> from Como being a jailer and, uh, and getting uh, um, Ron Holden out of jail and getting a record contract and getting that song recorded and the rest is music history. All right, uh, we're here every Sunday night at, from 8 to 9 p.m. on Space 101.1 FM in Seattle and streaming at space101fm.org. I'm Felix Bunnell. The show's called Cascade of History. If you want to send us an email, cascadeofhistory at gmail.com. Your guest suggestions, your ideas for shows, we love to hear it. Keep those cards and letters coming, and uh, stay tuned. Um, let's see. It's 64 degrees in the studio now, so it's gone up a few degrees. That's 13 degrees warmer than it was one week ago tonight. Um, All right, everybody, have a good week, and we'll talk to you next week. That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it, that's a slippery spot there. I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bunnell.